Welcome to City Talks, a monthly podcast looking at the big issues facing UK cities and the latest thinking on urban policy. I'm your host, Andrew Carter, from the think tank Centre for Cities. I hope you enjoy the episode. Welcome to this edition of City Talks. Today, my guest is Andy Haldane. Andy is the Chief Executive of the RSA, the Royal Society of Arts, Manufactures and Commerce. He was formerly Chief Economist at the Bank of England and a member of the bank's Monetary Policy Committee. He was also the chair of the Industrial Strategy Council and for a short time was a permanent secretary at the Department for Leveling Up with specific responsibility for getting the Leveling Up white paper published. Welcome, Andy. Thank you, Andrew. Great to be here. Uh, Lots to talk about. So let's dive in. And I suppose my opening question is, are we uniquely bad at addressing spatial inequalities in the UK? You know, we've had the problem for 100 years. We've been trying to do something about it for 100 years. We've made some progress, but not very much. Are we just really bad at this? I mean, how do you explain what we have or haven't achieved? Yeah, well, I don't know about uniquely bad. I think we're sort of distinctively bad, though, Andrew. Um, and the evidence yeah, speaks for itself in a way on that, that, that the gaps here, you know, spatially, regionally, and indeed sub-regionally, are larger than all of kind of Western advanced economies and, and, and most of the OECD. And uh, those gaps have been getting bigger over time, not short, not smaller over time. So we do stand out for the wrong reasons. We are an outlier for the wrong reasons. I mean, truth be told, every country, of course, has its uh, spatial differences and many are wrestling with them to try and close them. So we aren't uh, alone but our challenge is somewhat larger, I'd say, than others. And that begs the question, why? Of course, there is no single reason why. But if you were picking one, if I were picking one, you need look no further than regional policies, the regional policies that we put in place in the UK. There's been no shortage of those, Andrew, as you know. They've come thick and fast, wave after wave, Um since at least the Second World War. And in a way, you know, therein lies the the answer that they have come thick and fast, that those policies haven't tended to stand the test of time. They have chopped and they have changed. And we know that that pretty much preordains failure. Because when you have spatial differences like those in the UK that are large and entrenched, it's only by sticking the course with your policies you have, you have any hope of, of reducing uh, those disparities over, over time. So yes, we are an outlier for the wrong reasons and uh, our approach to policy is not all, but a large part of the, the explanation for that. And how, how do you then think about no, because one of the the issues that you and I have discussed, uh, you know, many times is the sort of centralised nature of, you know, England particularly, but you know, the UK, in general, dominated by you know Westminster and and Whitehall, um, is that part of the problem in a sense? But how does that then square with the chopping and changing sort of issue in a sense? Is it that central government just continually changes its mind on these sorts of things and doesn't have that prolonged commitment to? you know, a set number of interventions or a set number of policies. How do you think about the the interaction between that centralised nature and then the chopping and changing? Yeah, I think the two are related, Andrew, uh, for for, for the reason that you say. You know, if, if, as is the case in the UK, as uh, as you know, and and as the Centre for Cities has done loads of work on over the years, fantastic work, uh, the UK is an outlier in the degree of centralisation of, well, both spending and taxing powers, actually, both arms. And if so much is being held centrally, then that does mean that those policy levers uh, are, if you like, you know, held hostage to the political cycle. And therefore, as that cycle turns, there's a chance that central government policy turns with it and you get the chopping and changing. Or put differently, you know, had more of those powers been held locally rather than centrally, there's a good chance, I think, that have been held hostage to a lesser degree by the political cycle than has been the case um, historically. So I think those two things are related. I mean, there's a more general point, I'd say, 
that in terms of effective placemaking, I think uh, that does require a degree, a high degree of local knowledge and a high degree of local agency. You know, your own work has demonstrated very clearly that the UK's economic geography is a very rich tapestry. Everywhere is a bit different and some places are very, very different. So centralized command and control solutions are very, very unlikely to, to meet the particular needs of particular areas, which underscores the importance of you know, local decision-making, local information, local agency, and that we have not had. And that has also, I think, been a significant contributing factor to our somewhat poorer picture. Yeah, I mean, um, I was recently talking to um, Brian Groom about his uh, brilliant new book, uh, Northern or the Northerners, you know, kind of rich, long history of the North and, you know, the various cycles it's gone through. And, you know, one of the issues we kept coming back to was obviously the significance of the Industrial Revolution in the, you know, in the history of the of the North and how we understand it but also the sort of legacy of the industrial revolution as it begins to obviously to peter out and the the weight of the legacy of the industrial revolution in helping the north i suppose transition away from uh, an industrially orientated economy towards a service economy towards a knowledge economy and, and the, 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 that transition gets stuck and in some respects is still stuck but you know getting less stuck over time i wonder what your kind of thought is on on that sort of view in a sense of this transition and we see this not only in the north it's it's also our, our big industrial places whether that's the midlands or south wales or parts of scotland but there's a kind of story of transition and the ability to or to transition or not and i i don't know what your view is on that and what your kind of perspective is on that yeah so um i haven't read brian's book sounds like i should do being a northern yeah, it's a brilliant book. um uh i will one for the weekend reading another one for the weekend reading andrew um <laughs> My diagnosis, I'm not sure it's a very contentious diagnosis, um, is that yes, we had the, you know, a lengthy halcyon period, uh, not just for the North, but for large parts of the, of the UK, it was true. Scotland is true, Wales is true, the Midlands as well, you know, that the, the Industrial Revolution was truly transformative for those parts of the UK as it was for the UK as a whole, and indeed as it was for the, for, for, the, for the world. That's the good news. The bad news, as you say, Andrew, was when the transition came, when we moved away from a position of manufacturing might to the emergence of, in the UK, a service sector oriented, and indeed increasingly a service sector dominated uh, economy that required a transition. I think the mistake that was made, which was at least in part an ideological mistake, was that, okay, so the old is depleting, it's diminishing, it's perhaps even dying. Um, that will happen. But uh, as the old dies, the new will then be born in its place. Uh, and that will happen through some natural process. Market forces will drive uh, money and people and businesses and culture to fill the space vacated as manufacturing and heavy industry departs. That was a complete ideological misthink. It's not a mistake we should have made, actually. If we viewed our economy uh, like an ecosystem, we'd have reached a very different prognosis, that if you deplete a rich ecosystem of its core constituent, if you, if you deplete a rainforest of its trees, it doesn't naturally recover. In fact, it's forever blighted. And that's what we found in large parts of the UK, that they did not naturally uh, refertilize and receive themselves with new industries and with new businesses. They found themselves in a, a cycle of depletion as monies and as people and as businesses uh, exited those places in a, a, a vicious cycle, the complete flip of the virtuous cycle we'd seen during the Industrial Revolution when money crowded in and people crowded in 
and business crowded in. And, and the takeaway, the lesson from that is that you absolutely can't rely on market forces left to their own devices to regenerate and reseed and refertilize parts of the country. You need an active activist policy to make that happen. And in essence, that's what the leveling up agenda is all about. In essence, that was what a large part of that previous work you mentioned on industrial strategy was all about. That doesn't mean, by the way, that doesn't mean that government does everything. It doesn't mean that you nationalize great swathes of the UK uh, and have it stay run. What it does mean, though, is you need to think actively about how government interventions, sometimes with monies, but not always with monies, can help crowd in action by local governments, by local businesses, by local financiers, by local community groups, and the like, uh, because we know that they are the secret source to placemaking, to success in cities and towns and villages. So I think we made a mistake in the past, an ideological mistake. I think that mistake is now being understood, not just here, but elsewhere around the world. And this next phase of active placemaking, leveling up in the lingo we're using, is, is recognition of, uh, of that. And that gives me a, a lot of confidence that we won't go into an ever, you know, uh, this cycle of depletion can come to an end. Yeah, yeah. And to be, um, to be successful, do more places need to be like London? We're not suggesting that these places become a nine million, you know, metropolis, et cetera. But I mean, in terms of the way that their economies work, you know, the, the, the structure of their industries, the nature of their workforce, I mean, to the degree to which they look a little bit more like, I mean, it's a contentious issue, which, you know, we get, everybody rightly says, you know, we don't want to be the London of the North or the Midlands or whatever it is, but... I mean, I think Danny Finkelstein was writing about this in the Times a couple of weeks ago, was basically said, if you take levelling up to its kind of natural conclusion, more places will need to look like London because London is a successful place. Not perfect, but successful. It, what's your thought on that? Well, I mean, my answer, this is classic economist answer, Andrew, by the way, <laughs> is yes and no. Yes and no. <laughs> on the um, one hand, on the one but on hand. the other. Let, let me give you the, the yes bit and then the no bit. Uh, I mean, the yes bit is that the the secret of London success is is easy to spot. It has served for for, for many decades, arguably for many centuries, as a magnet for all those good things I mentioned earlier on. A magnet for for monies, a magnet for business, a mag magnet for people and skills, a magnet for for culture, a magnet for infrastructure, and we we know, uh, don't we, that that if you have magnetic attraction for those things, they come together and, and good things happen. Um, good work and, and, and good pay and, and, and good transport and, and, and the like. And, and we've seen that in London. And do I think success looks like having many more places that are able to attract in those things in a, in a virtuous cycle of regeneration and replenishment? Yes, absolutely. That more if you like, kind of polycentric model of growth with cities, large and small, having that same magnetic attraction that London has had. I mean, we're seeing that, by the way. It's not, this is not fanciful, as, as you know. Yes. There are a whole set of cities around the UK where we're seeing this happen before our eyes. And every time I visit, I see more of it happening. I was in Greater Manchester just last week. And every time I go back, I see another great leap forward. And that is fantastic to to see. Um, I mean, the no part is that not everywhere could or should have the London story. Everyone's got something distinctive that's special to them. Everyone needs a narrative about their area. In fact, in some ways, Andrew, it's easy to spot when places are on the earth, but it's not the usual thing like, you know, crane count. And uh, it's whether a place has a story about itself mm. that's forward looking and uplifting rather than backward looking and pessimistic. Yeah. Uh, and those places that can tell a story about themselves that is looking forward rather than backwards and looking upwards rather than downwards, you know they're onto a good thing then, right? 
and everywhere needs a different story. Everywhere shouldn't be copying the London story. You know, everywhere can be a financial services hub for one, but everywhere, everywhere, everywhere needs something, but it's not the same thing. And that's the no part of the, the answer. So absolutely you want those to drift into economics jargon. There's agglomeration, there's magnetic forces yeah. of attraction yeah. of the good things, but everyone needs something that that's special to them, distinctive to them. And, and, and to go back to the industrial revolution, what was one of the reasons that was so successful is because different places had different things, different stories about their area. Yeah, for some, it was textiles. For some, uh, it was coal. For some, it was shipbuilding. Uh, and that was a really important part of belonging, of the place building, place making process. Do you think that kind, not exactly the same, but that kind of specialization uh, and is, is still possible in a, in a service orientated um, economy? Because I, I agree with you in a sense, it restruck me reading Brian's book, how specialized certain places were with particular bit not only industries whether it was coal or textile or uh, or wool but actually even even within sort of industries certain bits of those industries Leeds was very different from Bradford even though they were both you know notionally in the wool industry is that is that kind of specialization do you think possible in a in a modern service oriented economy well I think so I see no reason why not I mean it's um it doesn't mean I think you necessarily just specialize in one thing. Yeah. But uh, I do think, um, you know, being known uh, as a hub, uh, as, a, as a cluster in the local, uh, in the more modern uh, jargon uh, of businesses and skills and activities uh, is, I think, still important. That doesn't mean that you can't, you can't bring different of those clusters together. And benefit from you know larger economies of scale and scope over over time. Let, let me make that concrete for you. So let's take the. Um, I was born up in Sunderland on the northeast coast. There's little you know pockets of of great stuff happening along that coast now. You know think uh, Nissan and Vision in Sunderland itself. Mm -hmm. Think Britvolt in Blythe. Think the whole offshore wind hub around the Humber. Those are distinctive clusters right now. Yeah. It's not totally fanciful to think that in the fullness of time, that couldn't be some super cluster that run down from the borders to the wash, broadly speaking in the kind of clean green industrial revolution space. There'll still be specialism, yeah. but there would also be a join up between different of those clusters and that will give you a story about a region as well as about a particular place i think that is i can see some real attraction in that, andrew yeah no that makes that, that makes perfect uh sense i think it's always a kind of interesting one about how you make real some of the how do people find their or how do places find their place as it were in the in the modern economy and happen to think laterally and probably over slightly longer periods than they they may be you know have done in the past um let, let's slightly change focus to as I said in my introduction to you, um, you know, leaving the bank and before you got to the RSA, you know, literally got to the RSA, you had this sort of period in government, you know, taking charge of the the leveling up white paper, getting it over the over the line. Um, what struck you most going into government? And obviously, you know, you were in the Bank of England before, big institution. Uh, but what struck you going into government to do that job? On you know, it can be an upside. Uh, kind of thing that struck you or maybe a downside you know but, but what struck you most going in yeah maybe a couple of things on that so um as i said i planned to um to be at the rsa but then got sort of spirited away by the uh, prime minister to <laughs> help out um which is very happy to do because i mean as you know it's an area that i've um yeah. well it's, it's the reason i studied economics right and it's the reason it's public policy so uh, it wasn't a difficult decision um to, to to lend a hand as a sort of jobbing economist uh I'd, I'd been close of course to the government machine throughout my career as a uh at, at the bank but never in the machine and of course there is a difference between working with the machine and being a part of the machine the whitehall machine and the one in question of course i should say i enjoyed it hugely more than i expected and 
we also achieved hugely more than I expected going in. And yeah, some of that was, you know, probably good fortune. Uh, at the time I sort of signed up, I didn't know Michael Go was coming in to, uh, I didn't know there was gonna be a new leveling up department. I didn't know that Michael Go would be leading it. So, uh, and that of course gave real go forward and momentum to this endeavor. Uh, we also didn't know there'd be a prospective bill, an act of parliament yes. to independence that's now wending its way through the houses. And that also, I think, gave us a degree of extra giddy up. Um, really important, that one. I mean, not much focused on so far. But when it comes to, you know, what is it that can secure that degree of longevity for regional policies that we have not had in the past? And there's no surefire way of securing that. But having things embedded and enshrined in legislation yes. gives you a greater chance of securing that degree of longevity. And the public policy game, you know, through my decades and decades of time in it, I mean, the best you'd hope to, to do, right, is to put some stakes in the ground that are difficult to uproot. Uh, nothing is forever, but you need to make it as difficult as possible yeah. <laughs> for, for things to be dismantled at the point you, you exit the, the, the stage. Uh, and legislation can help on, on, on that. And in some ways, the, the leveling up white paper for me was putting as many deeply rooted stakes in the ground as possible to try and secure longevity for things that we uh, that we did. We, we did much, much better on, on that than uh, I would have imagined going in. Uh, I mean, you hear tales of how difficult it is to move the whole machine. And of course, for leveling up to be successful, you need every department pointing in the same direction and coordinating. You know, I knew that would be a challenge. Uh, we managed to move the dial on that very much more than I thought we would. Uh, and that was among the reasons why it was both more, more enjoyable and indeed much more successful than out of guess going in, Andrew. How did, how did HMT behave? Because <laughs> they're all, I mean, uniquely, again, we are unique in some respects, you know, not only, as you said right at the beginning, not all necessarily for, for good things, but, you know, but HMT has a, you know, a, a big role in uh, domestic policy, well, all policy in, in the UK, not just on a spending front, but actually on policy itself. You know, and they, they're always naturally cautious about some of these issues, I suppose, particularly if they can see big pound signs being associated with any given agenda. I mean, just just your reflections on, you know, sort of the nature of the engagement and where you think they were and where they kind of got to and where where might we need to go next with with uh, with them particularly? Yeah. So, um, I mean, pretty much the point I arrived, the spending review, uh, arithmetic had been signed off. So, you know, the fiscal envelope was uh, was closed, and I knew that going in. By the way, that was um, that was a given. And of course, it's always nice to have uh, more money to do things. Equally, I think you know we both agree that this isn't just about the writing of checks from Whitehall. And and with the envelope having been agreed and sealed. Uh, it did lead us to focus much more fairly and squarely on other things that could and should be done to make good on levelling up. Uh, and one of those, on which the Treasury was extremely supportive, both Rishi as Chancellor and, and Simon Clark as CST, both of whom, by the way, previously had spent time in MHCLG uh, before it became the levelling up department, was on the area of devolving more powers to the local level. That's a, a non-fiscal intervention. I think most would agree an absolutely essential one to uh, to make good on, on levelling up. And, and both uh, Sam and Rishi were very supportive on us pushing out the boat on devolution to a significantly greater degree than, to be honest, I would have guessed early on. And, and that's in, kind of encoded now in a devolution mission. We've got 12 missions underpinning the whole endeavor, but there's one specific to Devo, which is that by uh, 2030, every area that wants a Devo deal uh, can have one. Um, but actually, the real kicker isn't that one. It's the second part of the sentence, which is that uh, not only can they have a deal, but it can have powers at or approaching London levels. Mm. 
And let me tell you, Andrew, if, if that mission would be made good on, and I hope it is, by the way, by 2030, yeah. that will be a, a fundamental recontouring of the devolution landscape in the UK. It actually is a very ambitious, particularly for 2030, objective. It didn't go the whole hog. There's further to go on, on, on Devo. We might get onto that. Yeah. But it would be a it would be a significant step forward. And I mentioned that only because I never wanted, I would never want the success or failure of leveling up to be judged purely by how much money central government is spending. It strikes me that's the wrong debate to be yeah. having. And do you and, think and that yeah, yeah. I, I mean I agree with you on that. But do you so in that sort of vein, do you do you think the you know the focus on the money aspect of leveling up, do you think that's the kind of biggest misunderstanding or biggest er error that you know those that are engaging in in a conversation around level up make in a sense it becomes almost exclusively about money on the one hand but but more than that it becomes a a a kind of big focus on these relatively small pots of discrete funding whether it's leveling up fund or towns fund or spf all of which are you know are we're not saying they're not important and they don't matter we're not saying that. But do you think that's the biggest sort of category error, really, when we think about leveling up? It just becomes about money and then these pots of money, and we become obsessed by that, and we miss a much bigger story, a much bigger agenda, which you're you know you're just touching on there, which is about how government works across the piece, how it devolves responsibilities across the piece to, to more places. Is, is that Would you agree with that? Or? I, I would agree with that. I, I, mean, I don't know if it's the biggest mistake. Um, it's not the only one, that's for sure. But it's certainly it's certainly up there that there is a you know an obsession, a borderline obsession, among some of the political class, the media, the commentary. You know, the, the initial thing is how much extra money is there for leveling up, and that dominated the first probably day or two days or three days. Yeah. As I knew it would, by the way, because it always does. People can't help themselves. Uh, and it wasn't just, Andrew, actually, it wasn't just about money. It was also focused on the, on the new money. Uh, there's a really important point here in that, you, for me, a significant stride forward in the white paper was uh, less about you know, the creation of new pots. And you mentioned a few of them there, all of them good, but ultimately relatively modestly sized. You know, a, a financially more important factor uh, that we got hardwired into the white paper was what you do with existing monies. Yeah. How you deploy existing money. We've got a we've got a government. It's not spending small amounts of money right now. It's yeah. it's got a budget of nine hundred billion pounds, right? Um, and how it deploys that around the country overwhelms what's possible through little pockets of new money. So yeah. you know, if we start redirecting, as will happen. A greater chunk of the transport budget outside of London and the Southeast, that could be transformative. And almost all of the almost 100 billion integrated rail plan is outside London and the Southeast. If we start redeploying the R&D budget to places outside the Golden Triangle, which we are, uh, that too is in financial terms going to knock Towns Fund and Levelling Up Fund into a cocked hat. Yeah. If we start reallocating cultural spending and housing spending similarly away from in the southeast, that too is financially very significant. So it wasn't just that people were focusing too much on the monies and too little on the other stuff. They're also focusing too much on the new money and not enough on the redeployment of the existing money. And, and that's why I was pretty confident that, you know, people would perhaps shrug their shoulders on the day of publication because they're looking in the wrong place. But that, over time, the more people read uh, and some of the more informed commentariat would come in and recognise the other, actually rather more important planks of making good on levelling up. Uh, which is often around, you know, government and governance rather than just money per se. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and you touched on this uh, just now. I mean, one of the central components of the the paper was are uh, uh, these 12 missions. And in a sense, you know, they cover a broad range of, you know, topics and areas. But just say a little bit about, 
you know, what, what's your thinking or what, what was your thinking? Where are you now in terms of the missions as instruments almost? You know, the content is one thing, but actually they're an organizing instrument to both, you know, have, have a sense as to where you're trying to get to. You know, they're outcome orientated rather than, you know, input driven. You know, they're set out through to 2030. So just just unpack because that, that seems to be, again, you know, from maybe from our point of view, it's a slightly wonkish kind of anorak conversation. But but, you know, our, our audience are like that. So we're fine in, in that sort of sense. But but, you know, what is it about the missions that you why are they so central to, you know, to getting some of this done uh, over the sort of medium, uh, a medium and longer term? Yeah, absolutely. Listen, um, Wonkish and Anorak is, is my preferred space, Andrew, as you, as you, as you, as you, as you well know. Um, well, I mean, they're serving uh, a number of roles and I was very keen and more importantly, you know, others were um, very keen to have them as one of the key anchors of the program. Why? I mean, one of them was that longevity factor that if you uh, want something to be stuck with through thick and thin for the long term, then the mission-led approach, if you like, is, is a way of doing that, yeah. to, to, to fix a point on the horizon and, and say we're going to start marching towards that point on the horizon. And to a degree, that then is a soft pre-commitment on government because either it's, uh, then you can track progress relative to that point on the horizon over time, required to explain whether you're on the path towards the promised land and indeed explain if you're off the path and what you're going to do to course correct if you're off that path towards the uh, endpoint mission. So that was important for reasons of longevity and, uh, and pre-commitment and indeed transparency. I mean, to an extent, you know, what the missions also do is to provide, I hope, a clear and coherent, coherent um, answer to the question, what is leveling up? I mean, remember, these words have been bouncing around now or had been for 18 months, two years. People said, you know, what is it? How would we know we're making good on it? And the missions, I think, provide a pretty concrete quantitative answer to that question as well. You know, this is what success looks like. And on success, I think we broke the mold. I think we shifted the orthodoxy uh, on how you go about effective placemaking, what the secret ingredients are of success in a place, which of course include the usual suspects. Of course, you're seeking to boost incomes and productivity and living standards and skills and education and infrastructure. Of course, um, it is that, but it's also about establishing pride in a place. Mm. Uh, it's also about boosting people's lived experience or well-being in a place. It's also about giving agency to local people through devolution. And it's that blend of what we called capitals that hold the key to success. So this was some distance from the economic orthodoxy, certainly of the 80s, the 90s, or the early, uh, early noughties, and a much more plural approach to defining and securing success that for us flowed very, for me, flowed very naturally from the theory, flowed very naturally from the evidence, some of which you at Center Cities had, had yourself put together. So this is a, a change in approach to securing long-term anchoring of success, but also a change in the recipe for that success, uh, which is why the missions are are plural rather than singular. There's 12 of them rather than just one or two. And how hard did you have to work to get those, both the, you know, the concept, uh, the broader concept and the missions? Was there a kind of willing audience for this or, or you know, did... Did some come reluctantly kicking and screaming or did some leave the room? I mean, can you give us an insight as to, you know, whether there was a broad acceptance of this um, or or not? Because you're right, it does fly in the face of, you know, some orthodox thinking about, you know, how you do things and, and often a separation between what classically we would think as being kind of harder economic issues and softer sort of community uh, social uh, issues. You know, they're blended very 
deliberately in the paper, both in the upfront sort of uh, discussion of the theory and of the, you know, the practice and the understanding, as well as then through the through the, the missions. But willing or, or or not, how hard did you have to kick? Well, you know, Andrew, there was a, a degree of um, heavy lifting and, and, and <laughs> persuading coaxing and, and, and cajoling of, of people, which was, you know, very good conversations to have across the Whitehall machine. I, I mean, I was coming to this off the back of not just having thought about it, but having experienced it for many, many years, actually many decades as it turned, uh, as, as, as it turned out, you know, so yeah, I'd done my homework on the, on the theory. I'd done my homework on the evidence. I visited most parts of the UK firsthand to understand what was going wrong and what was going right. And I saw in part of my role coming in, as I say, as kind of jobbing economist, was to, to set that out uh, and to, to talk through what I'd learned from that experience and hopefully try and uh, persuade people that this was a, a different way of approaching it, but one that was very much borne out by both the theory and the evidence and the experience of, of people, the lived experience of people. I think you need all bits, by the way, Andrew. Uh, you know, I wanted a coherent story conceptually. I wanted a, a story that, that matched the evidence. I wanted a story that also matched the experience of people who lived there. And uh, I hope with, with, with all three of those in combo, you know, that will be enough to persuade, you know, we have to work with every Whitehall department to, to, to agree those missions. And we have to strike, strike a, what is a difficult balancing act when you want a, a mission that's ambitious, that's genuinely transformational, but equally isn't pie in the sky. It needs to be realistic. Yeah. Otherwise, kind of what's the point? And, and, and seeking an appropriate balance point between ambition and feasibility, you know, did require a degree of, um, of discussion and debate and deliberation with every Whitehall department. And, and um, uh, that was obviously tremendously good fun. Uh, but where we landed, uh, I think, was a good place. I'm very happy by where we landed. And um, uh, the, 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 the great departments could come together in this way was a real tribute to, uh, to them. And, and I came away, I should say, with tremendous respect for the machine, for the expertise and the commitment and the public spiritedness of the civil servants. They don't always get that that praise and uh i absolutely would want to you know make a make a point of that that even when there were differences you know as inevitably they were and they should be it's contested yeah. um that they will work through we we came to a i thought a good a good landing uh a good landing point yeah one of the other again you touched on it so when you were the chair of the industrial strategy council one of the things that the council was doing you know very crudely was you know, marking the government's homework, right? In a sense of having to say year on year or, you know, over a period, what's been achieved, what hasn't been achieved. It's not clear yet whether the levelling up white paper will have a similar sort of independent or partially removed sort of in institution. Would you, would you advocate for that? Would you call for that? You know, in a sense, the government will need to put out what it needs to put out in terms of you know, how it's progressed, but having that sort of quasi-independent or you know, one step removed, particularly if it's headed up by, you know, individuals such as yourselves that says, actually, we've looked at the numbers, we've done the work and we think, you know, progress has been made on X, but not on or Y or more progress on X and less on Y. Do you think that's an important part of the, not only the drive to make sure that we get implementation, but actually that we are, you know, transparency, accountability, progress, remains central to the way the government kind of thinks about levelling up? I do, Andrew. You, maybe not be surprised to hear me say that. Um, now, there are things in the white paper, hardwired into the white paper, that will will make good on some of that. So there'll be a requirement to report on an annual basis on progress against the missions. Uh, we shall provide a degree of sunlight, a degree of transparency on, on progress. Uh, they'll be subject to scrutiny, I hope, by by you and yours, but also by, you know, by parliamentary committees and the like, and that would be an important ingredient of accountability. Uh, there's also, and it's there in the in the white paper, being an advisory council set up, levelling up advisory council. Uh, some fantastic people on that council. I mean, it really is richly endowed with expertise and, and independence and experience. 
and they will be able to you know contribute uh, thoughts and advice on progressing this uh, agenda. I think it's probably uh, likely that I'll uh, chair that group myself. Actually, to your question, you know, is there a case for a, a, an independent arms length, perhaps even statutory body, uh, exercising that uh, accountability and, and, and oversight? Yes, I think there is. There was more of that make, of that form, you know, in the spirit of. Committee on Climate Change, yes. Office of Budget Responsibility, and the National Infrastructure Commission. Now, we didn't quite get to that point, but we had something as a sort of bridgehead, perhaps, to that over time. Yeah. I think that would be a thoroughly good thing if over time, if the teeth of the Advisory Council were sharpened and perhaps even were put on a statutory footing. Yeah. You touched on uh, sort of your responses to some of the criticisms of the, the of the paper you know both in its initial uh when it first came out and then slightly over time and it's kind of a classic you know looking through the some of the criticisms on the one hand it's like there's nothing new in it uh you know it's all kind of rehashed i think that's a good thing rather than a bad thing but interesting your thought you get sort of critiques it's too it's too broad in scope but it also doesn't have this in it so it needs to have that in it uh, it's simultaneously too ambitious and not ambitious enough. I mean, it's it's every. I mean, basically, it's everything and anything. I mean, you can pick whatever hole you want to pick in it, depending on where you're coming at it. I don't know what to make of that, but I wonder what you know. Just without getting into the specifics of criticism X or criticism Y, you know, now that you're not in it in quite the same way, what's your sort of general reflection on the nature of the? Is that just the way it goes? You know, when you do these sort of things, you're always going to get. You're always going to get hammered in some shape or form. What's your take on the the criticisms we, you know you've you've observed? Yeah, yeah. So um, I, I think your uh, your diagnosis is a is a is a very a, a very good one. And of course, it gives me endless joy when I'm, the paper is sometimes accused of being you know far too ambitious and unrealistic and, and, and having far too little ambition. You know, all, all the stuff you mentioned. <laughs> is, is, is yeah. That suggests you. Often by the same critique, by the critics. Often by the same people, yeah. So, so it's, um, we didn't talk for long enough. They just, you know, it's not ambition enough, but yeah, we, yeah anyway. So, I mean, they, they always give me a degree of confidence that we haven't struck the balance in too, too, in too bad a place if we're being run over in both directions. I had the same problem with the uh, issue at the bank periodically where um, when I was on the Monetary Policy Committee, um, either, you know, we were all subject to, all riddled with groupthink and all thinking the same, or we were cats and dogs uh, fighting. There was never any happy medium between the two, basically. <laughs> yeah. I think the same is true of white, white paper writing. I mean, what I would say is, you know, people have got different views and, and, and they're very much welcome. And, and um, we, we were very clear that we wanted to use the period after the white paper as a genuine period of consultation. And he'd set up groups precisely to do that, to, to, to engage and consult that so that people have views our view as being a success rather than failure my hope all along andrew was that the white paper would land in the very opposite way to a bad budget so a bad budget is something that looks fantastic on the day and then slowly disintegrates over time and my hope was that the white paper would be the complete opposite on the day people would shrug their shoulders and say well, no extra money but then as they digested it, it would begin to dawn on people that there were real things happening here that would have a real difference to real people's lives. And to be honest, you know, maybe people are just being kind, but from the literally hundreds and hundreds of conversations I've had with people about it subsequently, that's the genuine impression that I'm picking up. You know, when I speak to, to local leaders, whether it's businesses or government or, or community groups, they see something in there for them that they can take away and make good on. And in some ways, that was what was intended. This was about empowering and enabling local people, local leaders, not just government, but non-governmental too, to get on and make their place great. You know, when I'm asked to summarize the 375 pages of the white paper, I could do it in a single sentence. Uh, which is it's a new model of government. That's the rewiring of Whitehall I mentioned earlier on. But more importantly than that, it's a new model of governance. And that is about the enabling and empowering of local people. When I speak to local leaders, what they tell me is this gives, the white paper gives them the room, the powers, 
that go forward to do what they want to do, which is to make their place great. And 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 in that sense, you know, that, that that's been a reassuring message I've got from lots of talking heads during the course of you know what have been hundreds of conversations uh, over the last two or three months. Brilliant. That's a great kind of a summary of the you know where the journey that you know we're we're on and we've been on and we're on as i've got you and 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 because of the nature of who you are and the sort of your background in the the bank i i'm interested in your view on um i guess the economics field more generally and how it's you know how it regards sort of place and space you know in the sense that you know in sort of very conventional uh classical economics place and space are Kind of felt as a sideshow, not particularly important. Obviously, we have spatial economists and econ economic geographers and such. But I don't know. Just I mean, you've been in. You've been a chief economist at the Bank of England, so very much part of the establishment. But you've always felt like to me to be a non-orthodox economist, if I can call you uh, that. But I just just your reflection on you know the, the broader that broader agenda, because I think it does matter when we're trying to engage in serious ways about economic activity economic growth you know we need to be to be grounded in you know an understanding of the field that we're trying to work in right oh absolutely do and and um you know and and and, and today's heterodox is tomorrow's orthodox uh and we've seen that you know i think reassuringly uh we have seen the economic profession latterly going through some very significant pivots we saw it you know, at the time immediately after the global financial crisis, where, you know, finance and money had been a bit of a sort of sideshow in the economics profession and all of a sudden became front and center. Events made it so. Issues of health had been a bit of a sideshow in economics until COVID came along. And now it's very much kind of front and center in how we make sense of things. I think the same is true of that shifting orthodoxy when it comes to all matters spatial. I think you're right that in the same way as you know, inequality generally was not a big part of the profession until about 20 or 30 years ago and is now absolutely front and center spatial inequality has risen in importance and prominence uh over the same period to the point where you know i think there's a large and growing community of people who are you know fusing together geography and economics and indeed bits of sociology and anthropology and the like and for me that's a that's a much better uh model for making sense of reality whether you call it economics or some fusion yeah. of disciplines doesn't much matter to me you know many of most of my most interesting insights have come basically from beg borrowing and stealing ideas from other professions I, I mentioned you know viewing the economy as an ecosystem when making sense of the industrial revolution when i was making sense of the global financial crisis i was drawing on models from uh, evolutionary biology and epidemiology in, in in doing so and then making sense of industrial policy i would absolutely want to draw on the natural sciences and ecology for for doing so so i think you know all professions, I hope, are in flux and none more than economics. And I think they're moving, I think, in a very positive direction. Uh, and the embracing of all matters spatial and geographic are very much a move in the right direction. Yeah, I know I'm with you. I, I think that the future of the dismal science, as it's somewhat sometimes called, is actually much richer and more dynamic than, um, than sometimes it's given uh, credit for. I think the standard uh, hackneyed sort of critiques of economics, I think, is are misguided when you actually get into the detail of what's going on there's lots of things that we can do better and we should be doing better but um as you say there's there's a richness uh and an openness i think that is missed when um when you get the kind of superficial uh, critiques of it now my my biggest and most important question i've left to last uh andy uh, and so for listeners purposes we are recording this on friday the 20th of may and it's the day before sunderland play wickham at Wembley for promotion. So my big question to you is, Andy, are they going to win? And before you answer, given who you are, I fully expect you to control for all the biases that will be inherently within you because you are a Sunderland supporter. So control for all those biases, whatever they may be, and tell me, are they going to win? And by the time listeners listen, 
they'll know whether you're right or not. What do you think? Are, are you optimistic? <laughs> this is this is t this is testing my forecasting powers in it real is, time, Andrew. I'm very conscious about that. It's what a couple of months ago I was up in Sunderland, so on the top floor of the new city hall, uh, looking across the the city to the Stadium of Light, which is the Sunderland Stadium. But I could see the whole of the city, the the River Weir running through. You know, Sunderland's a city that's been um, struggling for 70 years since shipbuilding moved out. Too little else moved in. Actually, looking out from that uh, fantastic new building, I should say, uh, at the landscape, a lot of it was level, not leveled up, level. That's the bad news. The good news is, as I stood there with Patrick Mellier, the leader of the local city council, he went round and pointed out what was happening in different of the level spots, commercial property here, residential property there, new industrial plants here, prospective new fantastic film set. Uh, down the uh, upstream of the river. And that made me think, you know, for the first time in my working life, first time in my life, this is a place I was born, um, Sunderland might be beginning to turn the corner. It was ready to rise again. The placemaking was happening and Sunderland was turning and that would be fantastic for the people of Sunderland. And where the local economy leads accompanying that the football club <laughs> andrew is gonna be there right alongside as a key anchor institution starting tomorrow at wembley when we beat wickham right to the championship andrew so that that is my confident prediction not just for the football club as a key anchor institution but for the whole of sunland and the two will rise for the same reason, which is that sense of a, a future narrative, a future story about what Sunderland can be as a place and as a football club. So that is my note of optimism, Andrew. Fantastic. My guest today has been Andy Haldane. Andy, thanks for being part of City Talks. Thank you for listening to this episode of City Talks brought to you by Centre for Cities. You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher by searching Centre for Cities. Please rate, review and subscribe if you liked what you heard. You can also follow the centre on Twitter at Centre for Cities or like us on LinkedIn for the latest updates on what the centre is up to. If you have any comments on the episode or suggestions for topics we should cover in the future, we'd love to hear from you. Do tweet us or send an email to info at centreforcities.org. The music was from Palace Fires by Johnny Foreigner. Use with permission and all rights are reserved.